Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. There is a reason that people's first films are often their best films. And I think it's because people, while they are beginning, people draw upon the things that concern them the most. Something they've not been able to solve. Often it's a family matter. Things that weigh upon them. Things that they, they, uh, they don't know. They don't have a complete answer. They only have questions. I think when you have a, a lot of questions and they have enormous meaning for you and you know that the quality of your future life depends on finding some answers, then I think you're on to something. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 60. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life Podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. A couple of episodes back, it was episode number 58 with Simon Kilmery, the executive director of IDA. I talked about how at one time, in comparison to what was available for the whole indie filmmaking crowd, there was a lack of resources for documentary filmmakers. Now, I realize that to the truest definition, most of us documentary people, we're all independent filmmakers. So when I say indie film or indie filmmaking, I'm referring to our narrative brothers and sisters. Anyhow, when I was first starting out in documentary and I was trying to get myself up to speed on the how-tos of documentary filmmaking, there just weren't nearly enough books or how-to videos or workshops that were more geared to us doc lifers. The audience for this kind of thing, at least according to the marketplace, it seemed to be the indie filmmakers. That's gotten a lot better over the years, thankfully, but it's still nothing in comparison to the podcasts, books, and YouTube videos that are out there now. But information on how to make documentary films is certainly, it's much more available in the year 2018 than it was even in the early 2000s. This being said, there was one book that was always seeming to make the rounds in the doc community. It was really the only one of its kind, and I might argue that even today, now in its sixth edition, this book is still the only of its kind. It's the most exhaustive, thorough examination of making a documentary film that I still have yet to come across, certainly in print form. The book is Michael Raybiger's directing the documentary, and it was first released in 1987. And like I said, it has had quite a history, really becoming you know, the go-to manual on all things documentary film. In 2011, I was in Nepal working on Journey to Kathmandu. A sizable chunk of filming was out while trekking in the Himalayas. Anyone who's done any sort of substantial trekking knows that weight is a precious thing, that one packs as lightly as humanly possible. So when I was out there, I had my camera gear, two changes of clothing, some snacks, a water bottle, but that was about it. However, there was one seemingly frivolous item that I simply couldn't bring myself to leave behind in Kathmandu, and it was Raybiger's book. And it's important to note here that this is no market-sized paperback we're talking about here. This is, this is a veritable tomb, and a weighty one at that. 
And the truth of the matter is that I most likely wasn't going to have any time to be reading it. But for whatever reason, just the thought of having this book tucked, you know, deeply into my backpack, it served as some kind of inspiration for the doc that I was making. Again, we're talking the Bible of documentary filmmaking here. And so later on in the show, I'm proud to have on author, BBC veteran, documentary filmmaker, and founder of his own Center for Documentary, Michael Raybigger, to discuss this latest edition of Directing the Documentary. It's a great conversation that I'm eager to have with you. But before we do that, I'm going to talk with you about five books that, as a documentary filmmaker, you'll definitely want to have in your personal library. That's all coming up in just a few short moments here on The Documentary Life. Over the past decade, the world of documentary film promotion and distribution has changed dramatically. And what's awesome is, for the most part, is it highly benefits us independent doc filmmakers. However, we do recognize that navigating this new landscape of promotion and distribution can be a bit daunting when you're new to the task. Like, how do you make sense of the VODs and SVODs of the world? How do you find a distributor and sales agent that you can trust and who will work diligently to get your film out into the world? And what are they even looking for anyway? Or wait, maybe you should self-distribute your film. Maybe taking it out on a national tour is the right move for your film. But how would you even go about organizing such a thing? Is your film right for the potentially lucrative educational market? Or are community screenings the way to go? There are so many options available to you to get your film out to its market, but there are a lot of questions you probably have about how to do it, which is why we help you make sense of it all in our flagship program, The Documentary Academy. Inside the Academy, you will create a tailor-made, multifaceted, hybrid documentary film distribution strategy, one that's created based on your film and your film alone. You will have a strategic overview of how you will get your film out into the world and in front of the people who want to see it. Take control of your film distribution and enroll in the Documentary Academy at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. We'll see you there. All right, so let's get into my list of documentary book recommends. Let's call this list the five essential books for the documentary filmmaker. And these are in no particular order, by the way. Um, and I should note that there will be one wild card in here that you're either going to totally get or you'll totally be baffled by. Please don't turn me off if you don't like it. So, so with that said, here goes. Uh, number one, directing the documentary by Michael Raybiger. I know I've obviously already gushed about this book, and, and we're going to be speaking with its author momentarily, but I can't make this list without this book. I mean, if you could only choose one book from this list, this is the one. It's literally got everything in it. The history of documentary film is interwoven throughout the entire book. The book opens up with the discussion of what it means to be a director of a documentary, how it applies not only to your work, but also to you personally in your life. All phases of filmmaking are covered, including you know, thorough breakdowns of pre-production, production, and the post-production process. There is a massive section specifically dedicated to the craft and art of storytelling. Honestly, you name it, it's in this book. And if it is not, it can be found on the accompanying website, which really functions as, I guess, as a companion piece to the book. I think that perhaps they were probably trying to cut down on the sheer massive size of the book for, for docos like me who like to, I don't know, trek with the thing. 
So yeah, we'll get into this book more later on, but like I said, it has to be on this list. Number two, In the Blink of an Eye by Walter Murch. I mean, what filmmaking book list would be allowed to even exist without the inclusion of Sir Walter Murch's In the Blink of an Eye? Yes, I did just knight Walter Murch here on this on this very podcast. I wonder if I'm the first. That's actually not a bad idea, you know, knighting Walter Murch. We should start a petition for his incredible, undeniable, and sometimes vastly underappreciated contribution to cinema and really the language of cinema, period. I mean, who's up for this? A petition to knight the legendary Walter Murch. Sounds like an awesome idea, but I digress. Most of you probably already own In the Blink of an Eye, but if you don't, you'll certainly want to pick this one up. Um, and, and especially if you're planning on doing any kind of editing, there is no equivalent. You are literally hearing from a master of the craft. I think probably thousands of editors have learned not only from his films, but this little kind of unobtrusive book that could practically fit in your back pocket. His straightforward and down-to-earth approach to what really amounts to the Walter Murch philosophy on editing is, is well, it's, it's actually quite a fun read. And, and maybe more importantly, it gets you really excited to edit and to make films, as does the next book on our list, which is also Walter Murch related. It's called The Conversations, Walter Murch and the Art of Editing. This one isn't as as maybe widely known as In the Blink, but it's it's every bit as enjoyable and inspirational. And again, it's also not as compact as the former, but that's kind of the beauty of it. The way that the book is set up, it's actually a work of art in itself. As the title would suggest, it's essentially a series of conversations between Merch and author Michael Ondaja. And, and, and Ondaja is the, the, the gentleman who wrote The English Patient. Not unlike what I do here on the show when I talk with doc industry guests, it's really much more of a shared conversation than an interview per se. This is between an internationally best-selling author and one of the most recognizable names in cinema. And like I said, it's really a work of art. I've owned multiple copies and have given out a few as gifts to colleagues. The Conversations is complete with a ton of stills from films that Merch has worked on. Um, it includes uh, deeper dives into Merch's philosophy of filmmaking and editing, and candid and really candorous look at, uh, at Merch's life. Candorous. Is that even a word? Candorous. Probably not, but let, let's let's just go with it. So check it out. The Conversations, Walter Murch and the Art of Editing. Number four on our list is Shaking the Money Tree by Maury Warshawski. Actually, the full proper title is Shaking the Money Tree, The Art of Getting Grants and Donations for Film and Video Projects. You'll remember we had Maury on the show way back in the early days of TDL. It was episode number 15, and you can always go back and listen to it by visiting our website at www.thedocumentarylife.com. What Maury does here that is so great is that he forces you to go way beyond knowing and understanding what your film is about. He gets you to go much deeper than this. He wants you to work hard to get at what your own core values are, what your mission statement is, or, or why you're a documentary filmmaker in the first place, and finally, what your vision statement is. The idea here is to then take all of this information, which not only informs the types of projects that you'll want to align yourself with, but also the types of funders that you will want to align yourself with, or maybe more aptly, help define the funders who will want to align themselves with you. 
Mori effectively lays a foundation here from which you can go out into the world with your film, with your mission statement, and find the right funders for your film. The book also goes into specifics about approaching individual donors, corporations, foundations, and and government agencies. This book is truly a resource that you'll want to consider as as you venture forth looking for funding for your film. And speaking of money, it's time for that wild card that I mentioned at the outset. Are you ready for this? And don't laugh. Okay, I mean, you can laugh if you want. I'd probably laugh also if someone included this next one in, in a documentary film's book list. But, but, but nonetheless, here it is. And it's number five. And it's called The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. Yep. There it is. And I do mean that Dave Ramsey, the sometimes annoying talk show radio host who who discusses most things related to personal finances and debt. He talks a lot about debt. Um, Why on earth would I include a personal finances book in a list of documentary film book must-haves? Well, as you know, on this show, we not only talk about the how-tos of documentary filmmaking, but we also talk about other things that are outside the realms of doc filmmaking, you know, the rest of what makes up our lives, that actually directly impact our documentary passions. And personal finances is one of the more impactful things in a documentary filmmaker's lives, is it not? Now, you may not agree with Ramsey's political or religious beliefs. Ignore them if they do. That's what I had to do. But his take on personal finances and certainly his seemingly foolproof method of, of getting oneself out of debt is pretty rock solid. It's worked for me. It's worked for friends of mine. I recommend this one to anyone who's trying to get a better hold of of their financial life, especially those who may find themselves deep into debt, which is just a depressing but ultimately um, unnecessary thing to experience if you go by some of the things that that Mr. Ramsey suggests. Anyhow, this book and Ramsey's Money Methods literally got me to completely change the way in which I think about and use money. It had a massive impact on my doc life. And it could yours as well. So that's my list of five essential books for the documentary filmmaker. If you want to see this list and perhaps purchase one or two of them, what I'll do is I'll I'll post the titles and links up in the show notes for this episode. All show notes can be found by visiting our website. Again, that that, that URL is thedocumentarylife.com. Next up, we sit down with doc filmmaker and author of the book directing the documentary, Michael Raybigger. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and you are tuned into The Documentary Life. As you know, with the Documentary Life podcast and now with our new flagship membership site, Docland, our intention is to grow a supportive group of like-minded documentary filmmakers. And we want to put out to you guys the best of what we have to offer. We want to give you what you need to make sure that your films reach completion and then have long distribution life afterwards. Most of you also know that as of a few months ago, we opened up a private Facebook community page for The Documentary Life. And it's been extremely gratifying to have people connecting, sharing, informing, and inspiring one another with their stories of their doc projects and doc lives. And long may this community forum continue. 
However, as part of our Dockland site, which launches this coming Monday, February 12th, we have decided to offer a similar kind of service by providing a private group platform for people to be able to connect, ask pertinent questions, and generally support one another. After much deliberation and discussion between Steph and myself, we have come to the conclusion that we can only facilitate one such group. Due to restrictions and resources, this is the decision that we've had to come to, but do not do so lightly. Firstly, I want to reassure you that any and all current members of the TDL Community Facebook group, regardless of enrollment in Dockland or not, will continue to have full access and use of the community page. This will also be extended to any listener that would like to join the group before Monday's launch of Dockland. However, once Dockland goes live on Monday, February 12th, 2018, the only people that will be admitted into the group will be those who are part of the Dockland community platform. We thank you for your understanding, your amazing efforts in the TDL community group, and for your continued support of this podcast and our flagship membership site, Dockland. I have the honor of bringing on today into the program Michael Raybigger. Michael began in the cutting rooms of England's Pinewood and Shepperton Studios, became an editor and BBC director of documentaries, and then specialized for many years in the U.S. as a production and aesthetics educator. At Columbia College Chicago, he was co-founder, then chair of the film video department, and founded the Michael Raybigger Center for Documentary. He has directed or edited more than 35 films given workshops in many countries, and led a multinational European workshop for SILEC. Additionally, he won the International Documentary Association Scholarship and Preservation Award, served as a Fulbright Specialist in South Africa, and is an honorary professor at the University of Buenos Aires, as well as the author of the very well-known Directing the Documentary book. Michael, welcome to The Documentary Life. It truly is an honor to have you on the program. Well, thank you very much. Now, we had Joanna on the show earlier, and, uh, and, and, and in fact, she kicked off the new season and forma- format of, of the documentary life. And I asked her what her initial interest and experience in documentary was. And, and actually, before I even get further into this, I have to tell you, this was literally when I asked her this question, this was how I discovered that you guys were related. I actually had no idea that, that, that you were Joanna's father. Uh-huh. <laughs> but well. she, And she said to me, when I asked her this question about her initial interest and experience in documentary, she said that uh, that with a father who worked in documentary, obviously that might rub off on her a bit. But in fact, what initially the documentary experience for her was, what initially um, what drew her in was that she was in one of your docs. Do you remember this? Do you know what she's referencing, Michael? No, I don't. Okay, well, we'll have to we'll have to ask her about <laughs> that again. My <laughs> brother was in one of my docs, aged about six. 
Yeah, but yeah. I don't remember Joanna being in any of my documentaries. Oh, excellent, excellent. You know, I should have I should have followed up with her when she asked that or when she responded that way. But um, she, yeah, well, she let she let us know that uh, her her interest early on actually was from being in within one of your docs. So, so I I will ask you now, Michael. I feel like it's your turn. What what initially drew you into the field of documentary? Well, I'm I'm one of those people that whose life has been directed by chance rather than by planning or by, I suppose, I, by, I was going to say by happy accident, but I suppose it was a happy accident. Mm. I was working in the feature film industry as, a, um, as an assistant editor and then an, then an editor. And I was out of work one Christmas and I heard of, I was, somebody called me up and said, there's, there's a silly job here at Granada Television. <laughs> they were beginning a program called World in Action. This is in 1962, I think. Yes, yes. And it is still running. And it was um, it was a program run by journalists. And it, it, they did 30-minute films. They were shot on film. Mm. They were sh- shot, edited, and um, completed all within a week, which was an incredible incredible feat those yeah, days right especially with film and they were important subjects and i found myself after working on a number of of um pretty terrible feature films found myself working on things that seemed to be of national significance ah. i found that very very attractive and so i never went back to to feature films so that's how i, I drifted in sideways I, I edited for a while. Um, I always I loved editing documentary because there is so much more um, demanded of the editor than there is in features. Or rather, it's not more, it's different work. Um, it's more composition work. It's story and idea composition work in documentary. Whereas in feature films, you're serving the script and the ideas of the script and the performances of the actors. You're trying to you're trying to serve the characters, and you're trying to serve the, the all the subtexts that should be in the in the script in in the performances, and often aren't. So it was a it was a very interesting transition, and mm. I brought my I brought my feature film experience, right. all of which I'd absorbed, sort of only semi consciously. I was very young. Yeah, I brought all that experience. Of, and it helped me very much in in directing and editing documentaries. You know, it makes me think of uh, it makes me think of of the story of of another. Um, well, now he's become, a, of course, over the years, a very well known documentary filmmaker, but also a, a narrative filmmaker, feature film uh, filmmaker by the name of Michael Apted, and it. It made me think of him when you mentioned that because, of course, he's connected with Granada early on. And I believe was the Up series, was that connect, connected with World in Action or not? Michael was, um, he, he was part of our group. I worked in Manchester for a while with, with, the, uh, with Granada Television. Michael was, uh, uh, he'd just come out of university, I think, and he was, he was sort of getting oriented. And he worked on he didn't direct the first up series it was called seven up yes and it was the sort of seminal program from which much of the library material was drawn for for the 
rest of the series, which is of course <laughs> ongoing. Yes. Um, and he came. He took over directing the series, um, but initially he was, I think, a production assistant. Okay. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Wow. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That is truly one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Very influenced by that series. Me too. Yes. That's that's I mean, fantastic. How many films do you see, or how many series do you see, that that um, longitudinally examines? That examines people's lives and the decisions they take and the pressures they feel, uh, the circumstances they find themselves in. All of that's in that series. I think it's a service to mankind. When I go, I'd like to find out all about the moon and all that. Nick, a farmer's son, grew up in the Yorkshire Dales. And I said I was interested in physics and chemistry. Well, I'm not going to do that here. At 14, he was away at boarding school, and at 21, reading physics at Oxford. So what career are you going to pursue? It depends whether I'll be good enough to do what I want to really do. I would like if I... It's one of my favorite docs of all time, and, you know, this goes back to, you know, this was certainly early 60s, if not late 50s, I'd have to look it up. But in some ways, it feels as fresh as anything out there, even to this day. And, yes. and I wonder if at the end of the day, isn't it really about perhaps because it's about people's lives and their stories? Because isn't that what we're drawn to? I think so. Yes, I, I, I think that the, we, there are so many synthetic stories that try to be that try to get close to the human condition mm. as we know it. The, the successful documentary, I think, is successful because it does somehow dissolve the the what separates us from other people we we come very close to those people in, in um, seven up mm. we the, the up series we we follow them i think just as we follow just as television has learned to to develop character in its recent series mm. Mm. we now instead of having to do everything what a what a a novel does in 200 pages to do it in 90 minutes right now we have dozens of episodes and at last we're developing we're giving proper attention to character character is fate that's the famous saying character is fate right right well yeah i mean in many ways the up series is a precursor to um dare i say the the popularity of something like reality tv um, Absolutely. Of course, that's taken on its own beast at this point, but um, but it is interesting um, to note that because it is. It's yeah. just a camera following people. Maybe you can tell us, I, I'd love to get a picture, what was it like, you know, when you transitioned over to the documentary work, what was that like working in a place like a UK in the 60s doing doc work? And I know, of course, you did a ton of work with the BBC. Can you paint a picture what it was like that time? Yes, I, I can try. Um, it's difficult to disentangle one's own, you know, the, the constrictions of one's own life and mm. one's own fumbling through life <laughs> uh, from the period. But I think it was it was a time of expansion. We had the feeling that things were things were becoming possible. People were beginning to acknowledge uh, things. For instance, in in the area of sexuality. Mm. Um, people were feeling a new freedom. There was a new freedom in music. Right. There was a, f a new freedom in, in 
dressing. Um, I was I always had my nose to the grindstone, so I I was sort of saw all that out of the corner of my eye. I was actually in working in Soho, which was the um, center of the yeah absolutely center of things absolutely um so it was it was it seemed like other people were having a lot of excitement and i was trying to put together some sort of a career well you were filming the excitement michael (laughs) i was not really i was filming i was filming often filming people who who were already established or people who had made history Mm. or been associated with history Perhaps fifty years ago. Ah. So in a way, I was a I was a holdover from a previous period. Uh, I was an observer, and, and I was something very curious was happening to me, which is that I I was losing my sense of separation from the past. Mm. You know, when you grow up, everything before your par- before your own birth seems like impossibly early history. Yeah, you're right. My son walking along with me once, this little boy, he said, he, he began a sentence with, Daddy, when you were a Roman, did you wear a skirt? Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> because, of course, you were part of that history. Anything before That's him right. is, is all jumbled together as history. All jumbled together, yes. <laughs> so I think what was happening to me was I was, I was getting past that sort of bulkhead between your own life and everything that's gone before. And I was, mm. when I began working uh, for the BBC, I directed films about um, First World War, for instance, mm. the conscientious objectors. Mm. And I was deeply moved by them. I was deeply moved by people who fought as volunteers in the Spanish Civil War. And it, what it did, it, making an emotional connection with those people um, sort of demolished the walls that separate you, separate your imagination from the past. So I, I think I was, I was traveling backwards. So I was reaching out backwards and reaching out, perhaps in my own family, to the earlier generations of my family, more than I was regarding what was going on as tremendously significant Mm. it felt like a huge party for younger people Mm. it felt like a party for privileged people who who had time to time to party time to um, enjoy themselves well michael let me ask you this how when and how did you end up coming to the states ah that was um there was a period in my life a low period in my life um i was I was newly divorced. Mm. I was. Um, I had been making films that my producer was a little afraid to make mm. because they they touched on history that, that it was left wing history, and he was uh, his brother had defected to East Germany, so he was under suspicion. He knew at the BBC. Oh wow! So I made the films that that he he would have liked to have made. I think, and I think I got tarred with that brush. And afterwards, I, I was told one day, I'm sorry, we don't have any more work for you. I was told in such a way that I somehow knew that it, this wasn't a temporary thing. This was something <laughs> yeah. very long term. Right. <laughs> I just couldn't get any work. I could not find any work. And I couldn't, I couldn't step back into my previous role as an editor because of union restrictions. Uh-huh. I was a union member. Yeah, yeah. 
And so I was marooned in a position where I couldn't find any work. And I wasn't, I didn't have any qualifications to do anything else mm. apart from, hand, you know, handyman or, or driving a cab or something. And that wouldn't have, wouldn't have sustained, kept, allowed me to keep my family in its house. Yeah, right. So I looked, I, I hand-typed 30 letters all over the United States, wow. having shot in the States. And there was a little college in Chicago that was not too particular about academic qualifications. Mm. It wanted real-life qualifications, right. which I had. So that's, and I came for what was for a year, which was a tremendous relief because I was, I was, you know, at my wit's end. And towards the end of the year, there was, I'd got nowhere trying to find work to go back to in England. Right. And they offered me another year and another year, and that was it. Yes. I, without intending to, I'd, I'd emigrated. <laughs> leaving my leaving my children behind. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Well, and this is what you were alluding to earlier about, um, you know, not that you didn't have a plan, but really, sort of your journey took. Uh, you know, your it became a life's journey whereby life dictated where you would end up and and how you would be doing the things that you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was responding to my circumstances and trying to. You know, do the best I could. Right. At least I was earning. I was, I was able to pay down the debts I'd massed up. Yeah, right, right, right. So that's that's a common story, I think, about why people migrate. And that turns into, at some point, as often happens, or hopefully this happens in life, this turns into, you know, an, a, another route and another part of your journey that that at some point begins flourishing again, and and you start making films again, correct? No, I didn't make films for many years. I, I was, it was not possible. I, essentially, my career as a director was finished because it was too expensive to make films in a 16 millimeter unless you had sponsors and budget and all, and, uh, all the rest of it. Right. And, I, and all I could do was to, was to teach. And I, what I did was to turn my attention to since we were founding a film school for practically nothing, yes, um, I was with a couple of other people. We were putting together, we were ex experimenting with our students to find the best way to impart the knowledge we had to give them. So it was it turned from making films. It turned into a prolonged, very interesting experiment on how do people learn to make films. What's the best way to learn to make films? And as it turned out, I think it, it turned into an experiment in how, what's the best way for people to learn, period. Wow, wow. And how so? Learn, Why is that? I think people learn through doing. I'd always learned through doing. I hadn't right. done well at school. Right. I didn't do well in the, I didn't do well in, in with abstracts and with, with descriptions of, of things. I needed to, I needed to make things. I needed to put things together. I needed to, to experiment. Mm. And um, so I, I, as a kid, I taught myself radio. The, I taught myself electronics. And yet I was branded um, a failure because I couldn't do mathematics. <laughs> but I could do enough mathematics to make radios work. So it was, uh, you know, I was a misfit, educational misfit. And yeah. I landed in the States in a small college. Um, and Where you met plenty of other educational misfits, I'm sure. <laughs> it was a college of misfits. Yeah. yeah. It was a college of misfits. Yeah. So these were students that weren't uh, conventional academic all-rounders. 
there were people who had a feeling for the arts. Mm. Often they were the first people to go to college in their, in their family. Michael, I, I, for one, am, am thankful that you that you came over to the States and, and found your way to education. And I'm sure that that is the case oh, for you. hundreds, if not thousands, um, of, of certainly your uh, former students. Um, I'm thankful because, for one, uh, the book directing the documentary, which has really become, I feel like over the years, it's become a veritable Bible for documentary filmmakers. This is this is one of your, in my opinion, one of your crowning achievements. And this book is, I think I mentioned to you when when I when I first uh, when I first contacted you, Michael, um, I think I may have mentioned that I carried this book with me as one of the items that I took with me in the mountains, in the in the Himalayas when we were filming in Nepal. And this is, as you can, I'm sure, sure, can attest to, and any of my listeners who own this book, this is a not a light book. This is a fairly weighty <laughs> book. <laughs> but Chris, you're so lucky you'd had an early edition. Yeah, that's you true. That's true. <laughs> you wouldn't have come back from when this came in the mail the other day, I thought, wow, this has grown. It's somehow even heavier. I don't think I'll, I don't know that I'll be traveling around the mountains with these um, well, anytime soon uh, or with this, with this book. A skeleton lying flat on the Himalayas. Yeah, with a, with <laughs> that's a right. Decaying book on your back. Oh, <laughs> uh, the book is directing the documentary and, uh, and, 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 and this really is a comprehensive how-to of documentary filmmaking, this book. It's, it's, it's really not a book simply about directing by any means, is it, Michael? I think it's, I always wanted it to be a book about the, about the mental and emotional processes ah. that go, go into making a documentary, hmm. which is really about the, it's really about the creative process. Yes. And it, it applies perfectly well to, to, to literature or to non-fiction writing, how, how you go about examining yourself, using yourself, using your best capabilities to relay some aspect of the real world. Yeah, it is. It is. In, in many ways, it's funny when, when reading this book. And, 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 you know, to be honest, it's it's probably a big part of the reason that I appreciated the book so much um, as I have over the years is that it isn't, of course, it is a how-to in, of documentary filmmaking, but not unlike this program, it's so much more than that. It, it, it like you says, it, it, like you said, it covers, you know, it covers ideas of storytelling. It covers sort of the emotional aspects of what it means to make a documentary film. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love this book. The, the current edition is the sixth edition. That's the latest edition. I first began buying editions of this book. I think it was around the third edition. When and how did directing the documentary, this book, when did this happen for you, Michael? Oh, this, this is a funny story. It happened in 1983. I was the first, first person in my department to buy a, a newfangled object called a computer. <laughs> and to teach myself to use it, I thought, what can I write that will teach me how to use this, this thing? Mm. And then I realized that every semester, that's twice a year, I repeated the same information mm. to class after class. And wouldn't it be helpful if I could put it down in written form, maybe even get a book published? so that we wow. could start from all of that stuff, that students could read that, and then we could look at their work instead of me, you know, behaving like a live TV set. Mm. So that's how it started. 
I, I, I sat down what I had been used to telling my students. And then once it was set down, you know, the, the act of writing, always stumping your mind onto paper, yeah. is the beginning of developing your mind further. It just is, as, indeed. Just as taking you know, documentary material and then contemplating it, contemplating what's under the surface and contemplating all the connections. That's the uh, process, that's the creative process of making a documentary. The um, the sixth edition, the current edition, at first glance, it, it's not as, what the, the first thing I noticed, it's not as wide or as long as the last edition I had, but it still seems weightier. And, and again, you'll <laughs> forgive me if I don't bring this with me on my next doc adventure. Um, but, but you seem to be using... In conjunction with the book, you're you're using directingthedocumentary.com as a companion site. Was this an effort to cut down on some of the things that could be made downloadable, like personal and location release forms, camera and sound logs? Yes, it was a way to... Uh, the earlier editions published forms that people could use yeah. or that teachers could use. Right. And as soon as uh, websites could carry that kind of thing. Hmm. It made sense to make those accessible, um, not only to save pages that were not particularly useful to students, but um, because the teacher can take one of those forms and amend it to their own design. It's in, it's in Word, so all we have to do is download it and add or subtract as you wish. And, and I mentioned earlier, it's, it, it's a comprehensive how-to of docu-filmmaking. And this edition, yeah. it contains dozens of real-world exercises and case studies. Yes. Why did you decide to do that, Michael? I mean, I think it's a great, a great call on your part. I'm just curious about how you came to do that. Okay. It goes back to when I was about 11 or 12. My grandfather gave me a book called 101 Things for a Boy to Make. And I learned a lot from that book. Oh, I wow. learned a lot from from how-to books. Yes. And also from, there's a book um, called Cinematography by Chris Malkiewicz, okay. which I use to teach cinematography in, in fiction filmmaking. Okay. I love the book, and I loved its practicality, and I love the idea that you give people tools, they can they can work with them and make things with them. I always, I've always wanted to encourage people to go out on their own and make things because that's how I learned. And, and, and certainly nowadays, maybe more than ever, documentary filmmaking is accessible to a heck of a lot of more people now, sort of with where technology is and sort of, um, relatively speaking, the, the inexpense of, of technology that these days. And so, um, I mean, people can be making people can make doc films with their iPhones nowadays, even. So That's right. It's it's incredible. Your, your sections on grant writing and fundraising seems to have certainly expanded a bit. I'm guessing, perhaps influenced by your daughter and her own profession. <laughs> yes. Tell tell us how how it's how it's been expanded in this edition. I think it. I think I've done my due diligence and written up what I know. Yeah. I've not had. I've not had a lot of personal experience. I mean, my my daughter has infinitely more experience than I do. Right. I would always turn to her. There's a there's a demand for it, and people people definitely need to know. If you pick up a book about documentary, you need to know that it's going to be nearly impossible to make a living at it, and if you're going to make films at all. 
get shown in the public sphere, mm. you need to line up a whole lot of things. You need to line up not only money, but contacts, exhibition sites. You need to enter it in competitions. Right. You, you're going to join a whole circus in, in order to get your film seen. And most people, of course, don't get beyond their first film, first or second film. Most people are, are, are defeated mm. by the process of put, getting the film into the marketplace. So I think what you're doing, what your website is doing, is tremendously valuable. I appreciate that. I, I, I believe that as well. And, and you, you've said something there that's pretty important, uh, in particular that speaks, I think, to my listenership, which is made up of, of uh, I, th I would say, primarily first and second time doc filmmakers. A lot of my audience um, have been working in film and video or at least are well acquainted with 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 making film and video. But but documentary, this might be their first or second time out doing a film. What so I'd love to hear from you, Michael. What are some of the things that they might be able to do so they can avoid that sort of avoid that that similar fate that you referenced of people making one or two docs and then they don't ever do it again? What can we be doing to avoid that? Well, I think that's that's just the quest kind of question that I was hoping for. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I think that. If you look at a lot of documentaries, it's very important to look at a lot of documentaries in order through aversion therapy to avoid making the kind of film that is already available in great profusion. Mm. I think the, the films that are the films that have a long life, films that live on in people's memory and imagination are films that have some poetic quality. And I don't mean. Yeah romantic or lyrical quality no. I mean some tough insight on the part of the filmmaker mm. into into the um, circumstances of their own life their own their own existence we we long for I think films about about the human the human story mm. about about existence what is it what does it feel like what does it mean to to exist this particular moment mm. in time and I think if you look back in literature, those are the books, people who have that quality, those are the books that live on, that people still read. If you look at the history of documentary, there are documentaries from 50 years ago that people still watch and still are still thrilled mm. by because they have some quality of self-knowledge, mm. of self-investigation that shines out through wow. the film that's very difficult to find it is and you know I, i'll tell you michael it, it it rings very true to me to an uh to a guest that we recently had on the program um her name is uh, a doc filmmaker who's been she's been making lordace has been making docs for 40 years 40 plus years lordace portillo is her name and she yes. in fact just received um, she just received an IDA Career Achievement Award. And Terrific. what you're describing there, Michael, very much to me describes the films of hers that I have seen. Um, there is a, 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 a poetry in looking back on her films. There is a poetic form. That, 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 that I hadn't necessarily seen in other films. And I think even when they were made, they may not have been appreciated as thus. And, yes. uh, and yeah, you very much described quite a bit of her work and, and maybe that it, it helps explain sort of the longevity of, 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 of her films. Um, you know, it, it makes me want to ask you, you know, when it comes to documentary filmmakers, 
the first names in terms of the history of documentary, the first names that you know we generally come across are, are, are people like Flaherty, Robert Flaherty, or or Grierson, John Grierson, and and Vertov, you know, an American, a Britain, a Soviet, yes. and 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 some of the names, those are the names that are more familiar when you talk about the early days of documentary filmmaking. I would yes. love to hear from you. Who are some other people? that we should be aware of that maybe get unnoticed when talking about the early days of documentary? Well, I'm not sure I can add much. I, I, I think those names mm. persist because they were people who were working originally with original minds working in a new medium, and they made a mark on that medium and with that medium that is still visible today. Mm. And that's why we remember their names. Yeah. I think other names have disappeared because they were using film theatrically or they were using it as in the classroom, as if they were lecturing. Um, they were using it in forms that were antithetical to the highest possibilities of the cinema. Well, let's use let's use let's use Nanook of the North then as an example. That's yes. one that all of us have seen by Robert Flaherty, because it seems to me what you just described he did. He embodied those elements, right? There was a narrative aspect Absolutely. to his film. There was information in his film. What was it about something like Nanook that has that out, has really outlasted, you know, so many other doc filmmakers? What separated his his film then? I think his emotional involvement with the with the idea of the of the of the Eskimo family. Mm. I think he 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 was personally involved even as a child with his father going out his father was an engineer a mining engineer and he went as i remember and he would go out with his father and he he met native people out in the wilderness right and they left a deep impression on him and something about about their resourcefulness their humor their persistence their in, unwillingness to to fold up in front of the terrible power of nature all of that is somehow reflected in that film mm. and it, as his films continue it's lost he loses it mm. it becomes sentimental it right. becomes an idea and, and sentiment but in the beginning in his first film which he of course he had to make twice yes he destroyed the first version right in his first film there is that involvement emotional involvement that wonder that admiration, mm. that appreciation for what for what people can do in, in in very dire circumstances to survive. He was interested in that film in survival, and I think he put down everything he felt and thought uh, in that one film, and it, it was there for the audience. The it, audience it was. got it. There, there's so even though much it uses, there. Even though it uses, even though it fakes, it's not a real family. Right. It's certainly not it, without controversy. Uh, right. But his, his heart was in the film. You, you know what I'd love to hear, uh, uh, Michael, is, is I wonder if you can think of some film subjects that maybe first-time doc filmmakers should be avoiding. Are there any uh, sort of ideas or topics or subjects that we should be avoiding? And I ask that because you mentioned this idea of, you know, a um, I forget the word that you used, but the idea was that people were the successful films and filmmakers are those that deal with emotional 
real emotion and emotional and not sort of prefabricated ideas. Yes. Um, yes. And, and so it makes me think to ask you, are there subjects or, or um, uh, yeah, are there subjects that maybe first-time doc filmmakers might want to try to avoid? I don't know whether there are subjects one should avoid. Um, I think there are. there is a state of mind one should avoid when making a documentary. If you're confident and if you are if you feel that you know a lot and have a lot to, to tell your audience, you're probably going to lecture them. So I think that's not a very, not a good state of mind to begin with. I would turn the question around and say, what should you be attracted to as a first time documentary maker? And I think that there is, a, there is a reason that people's first films are often their best films. And there is a reason that children's films are often so very interesting. Mm. And I think it's because people, while they are beginning, people draw upon the things that concern them the, the most. Something they've not been able to solve. Often it's a family matter. Things that weigh upon them things that they they uh, they don't know they don't have a complete answer they only have questions i think when you have a, a lot of questions and they have enormous meaning for you and you know that the quality of your future life depends on finding some answers and immersing yourself in finding answers then i think you're on to something then i think you can you you can work quite simply maybe with a phone as your camera mm. your sound sound but I think I would counsel people to work simply, work deeply, work with with what involves them emotionally. And that's difficult for men very often because we're taught to deny our emotions. Right. I think that's why women often make better films than men because they're they're more emotionally open, more emotionally perceptive. But that's what I would say. I would say work simply, work with something you need to know about, something you need to develop and learn about, mm. something, you, something that involves all of you, not just a part of you. We've been speaking with Michael Raybigger, the author of Directing the Documentary, um, a veritable, as I said, Bible for documentary filmmaking. And he is a, a, an industry vet who has worked on over 35 documentary films himself. And uh, it has just been a, a pleasure to have you on the program, Michael. Is there anything that you might like to add that you can think of that we may have missed? Yes, it's this. Anyone can make a documentary. Anyone with a telephone and a computer can make a sophisticated documentary. The difficulties and the challenge is, is how you go about doing it. Who you are and what you're doing, why you're doing it, and how you can best express what's on your mind and, and in your heart. And few people know better than you do, Michael. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Again, the book is Directing the Documentary. I'm going to go ahead and put a, a direct link to this in the show notes for this episode. I will also link to Michael's companion website, directingthedocumentary.com. Um, so again, just go to the show notes uh, and you'll be able to check out the book as well as the website. Michael, again, what a pleasure having you on The Documentary Life. Uh, I've wanted to have this conversation for a while. I'm so happy that, that your daughter, Joanna, made the introduction. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it. And you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.